So Ephesians chapter 6, we begin at verse 5. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. That's as far as we'll read in this part of God's holy word. Oh, friends, Jesus, you know, taught in the Sermon on the Mount that Being a Christian means that we are salt and light in the world. That is your identity if you are united to Jesus Christ. And it is also at the same time one of the ways that God advances his kingdom. One of the ways that Christ uses to build his church. It is a means that the Holy Spirit uses for good in other people's lives. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As Christians, we are not intended to retreat from the world or abandon the world, but instead to live out grace-filled, spirit-filled, Christ-like lives in the world. And a major part of our lives in the world is the workplace. The workplace. And this is where we've come now in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you remember the context, all the way back to chapter 5, verse 18, being spirit-filled and what that looks like, and then particularly a life of humble submission, submitting to one another in a general way out of reverence for Christ, but then in particular areas of life to show that submission and to do it humbly, graciously, for God's glory, being like Christ and having the mind of Christ who humbled himself even to the cross. And you remember that that Particular submission is worked out by the Apostle Paul in the main areas of life. Wives, submit to your husbands, he speaks, about marriage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, the family. And now, as we come to Ephesians 6, verse 5, slaves and masters. Now, obviously, those words are loaded words. There's obviously an historical context to consider, and we'll do that. 
But in the most general sense, in the most general application, the relationships that Paul now goes on to speak about in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, are the relationships and the dynamics of the workplace. What we would call a job. Or more biblically, a vocation. A calling. That's literally what vocation means. A calling. And so it applies to the work that we have in this world to provide for our material needs, provide for our families, and in order to give to those who are in need. But it also applies in in other ways. I think if you're a student here this morning, or if you're joining us on the live stream, and you're a student, you're in school, then I think it's entirely appropriate to think of your school now, the, the studies that you're in, your classes, that's your work. That's your job. So don't just think, oh, this is for for big people. This is for mom and dad. They have jobs. No, if you're in school, your school is your work. All right? And so listen very carefully here to what God is saying. It applies also to work or duties in the home. Whatever that may involve. And again, as we think about these verses, I hope we'll see that that these verses touch on themes that apply to Christians in general in every area of our life because it, it speaks about slavery and masters and freedom and work. And those are great, glorious gospel themes as well. So as we come to Ephesians 6, At verse 5, Lord willing, there will be two sermons, one this morning and one this afternoon. We don't, I couldn't fit it all into one sermon. Maybe you think it should be three or four by the time we're through, but two sermons. And I've entitled them The Gospel at Work. The Gospel at Work. And there's an intentional ambiguity there in that title. Because I hope we'll see the gospel, the word of God, as it is applied to our work. But I also am praying to see the gospel at work as we live our lives in others and in the world as we live out what God is calling us to do here. So the gospel at work, your employment, and the gospel at work, which is what we pray would be the effect by God's grace. Of course, these words, even though we read about slaves, boys and girls, and masters, these words are always relevant in the word of God. Every generation is involved in marriage, family, and work. Work was a gift that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's not a curse. Work was not the curse. It was a gift in the Garden of Eden. And work will somehow still be carried on in glory. Heaven is our rest from earthly labors, Revelation Revelation 14, 13. But 
It is also an ongoing serving the Lord. Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. But we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We're not yet in heaven. So here we are. And we know that sin, we know it from Scripture, we know it from our own experience, that sin distorts work. Sin disfigures work. Sin frustrates work. That gift of God, of work. Sin has infected work as thorns infested the ground and as sweat dropped from Adam's forehead. How do we see that? Well, there are some who despise work. They think work is a curse. They're doing everything so as not to work. There are others who idolize work. We call them most often workaholics. Sin leads to shoddy work. Or sinful pride in work. All kinds of ways that sin gets in there and and ruins what should be good. But the gospel redeems people, and it also redeems the work they do. The work of Jesus for us, and the work of his Holy Spirit in us, changes our whole attitude toward work. And that changed attitude should change how we work, no matter what our circumstances might be. Your work this morning might be wonderful. You might have your dream job. Or your work may be a great source of concern in your life right now. Especially if it's hard, difficult, if your employer is less than the perfect boss, perhaps. Maybe if your work is menial or boring. If you're there at work and you've ever wondered, why am I even bothering doing this anymore? These verses in Ephesians 6 are a great corrective to Christians, and also a great encouragement to us as we think about living out the gospel at work, the gospel at work. Well, what do we see? Verse 5, slaves, slaves. Now, when Paul writes wives, okay, children, okay, slaves, slaves, Don't just all sorts of thoughts just come flooding into your mind as soon as you read that that word. Just that first word here, I think, is both amazing and alarming. Amazing and alarming. I think first we should see how amazing it is. We should be struck with the amazing point that Paul speaks to slaves at all. 
that here is a letter, formal letter, written to the church. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul addresses slaves. And we go over that quite quickly. But it's really quite something, especially if you had lived in that time. In the context of the first century, no one would have bothered to include slaves in a letter. Why would you? It'd be like speaking to your vacuum cleaner. Slaves? Imagine people, oh, what are you, what are you doing taking the time to write to, to slaves? To address them along with masters. What a beautiful example of how God considers those that the world might despise or reject. What a reminder that while man looks at the outward appearance, the outward circumstances, God looks at the heart. And in Christ, there is no male or female or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. The Bible is full of examples like that. It's so wonderful to see. It's such a message to to human culture in every generation. The announcement of Christ's birth came to lowly shepherds. We're so used to this story. But in antiquity, people have said, certainly if you're an Egyptian, what, shepherds? Not shepherds. The resurrected Jesus appears first to a woman. What an honor. Jesus puts on women. And here, God speaks through Paul, even to slaves of that society. It's amazing that he addresses slaves just because of the existence and nature of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Slavery, of course, is a huge topic in itself. And I don't want this morning uh, the morality of slavery or, or a huge discussion of slavery to be the main point this morning, because it wasn't really Paul's main point here in Ephesians. But we should remember a few things because they always come up when people come to passages like this. First, and we'll just go over them quite quickly, slavery first does not equal the institution of slavery seen in the American South uh, before the Civil War, American Civil War. It's certainly not to be completely equated with the critical race theory agendas of people of today. Whatever or wherever money and power and fame are, are to be had in a fallen world, there will be the temptation for exploitation and inhumanity and indignity. But no matter what injustice and unfairness exists in the National Football League, for Colin Kaepernick to equate being a professional football player with slavery in other times, as he recently did, is just hyperbole. It's just trying to get attention and grossly insensitive to real slavery 
in history and in much of the world today. Colin Kaepernick is free to be a janitor in any stadium he wants. Slavery is not essentially racist. Certainly not an issue that only pertains to whites oppressing blacks. The English word slave comes from the word Slav, Eastern European. All kinds of people have enslaved all kinds of people. Very often their own people. We have to think carefully when we think about slavery and not just uh, adopt everything we hear, especially in our critical day of critical theory. Much of the slavery in the world was and is horrible and condemned by the Bible. Slavery exists today in many parts of the world. And much of it is so wicked that we couldn't imagine Paul not condemning it. We think of slave labor in many parts of the world, but also the whole slave industry involving usually women, but men too, women and young boys and girls for illicit purposes. We call it human trafficking. It's horrible. It's happening right here in Canada. It's happening in our own backyard. It should be completely condemned and punished. The, the Bible speaks to those kinds of things this way, Exodus 21, 16. Anyone who kidnaps someone, man-stealing, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. If we see man-stealing, and if that's what we're seeing in what we're calling slavery, then the Bible condemns it as a capital crime. And cruelty and abusiveness is also condemned in Scripture. Exodus 21:26, An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free compensate for the eye, and an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female said, must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. So we need to see that that's what the Old Testament teaches as well, but many people often still struggle with slavery being mentioned and in some ways approved of in Scripture. It's part of the law of God. But compared to other slavery examples, one commentator writes, when we read the Old Testament, we immediately feel the breath of special revelation on the issue. We have to say that the Old Testament, as one writer said, quote, does not regard the possession of slaves to be always and under all circumstances a moral evil. Of course, the word slavery, the causes for it, the relationships involved, the dynamics of it need to be explained. We can't just impute all that we think about slavery into what the Old Testament speaks of as slavery. 
Charles Hodge is very helpful in his commentary. He says, do not confuse slavery with particular slave laws, which may be good or bad, and so approved or condemned. What the scripture tolerates as lawful under certain given circumstances must not be cherished or rendered perpetual, says Hodge. Beware of denying the common brotherhood of man and the temptation to regard the enslaved as belonging to an inferior race. That's what happens when sin gets involved. The Old Testament slave laws had eventual freedom built in. Exodus 21.1 These are the laws that you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. And as we heard from Deuteronomy, when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But Greece and Rome in the first century were quite different than the Old Testament law of God. In those cultures, people were seen as property. Slavery here is contrasted in verse 8 with free. Uh, There was a bondage to it, as opposed to freedom. But it was much more than the idea of Slavery, or what uh, was underneath slavery in the law of God. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said, you cannot be unjust to things that belong to you. As a slave is a living tool, and the tool is as a lifeless slave. It was dehumanizing. It wasn't seeing the common image of God in the slave. And there was a cruelty that then came along with it. Rome was more cruel towards slaves than Greece. There were no rights or legal protection for many, for long periods of time in the Roman Empire for slaves. The Roman freed person or free person thought that, as one writer said, work was unworthy of a free man and was considered vulgar. If you're free, you wouldn't stoop to do any work. By the first century, there was some better treatment for slaves. Laws enacted. You couldn't maim or kill a slave just on a whim. You could no longer put a brand on his or her face. But it was still harsh and often cruel. Some estimate that 50% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. Up to 60 million slaves at one point. Slaves would have been responsible for domestic duties, manual labor. But there was another side as well. Educated people were also slaves, like doctors. You'd be a slave. Teachers, administrators, entertainers. The slaves could be inherited or purchased, acquired in the settlement of that debt. Prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Just for a counterpoint, one historian says many slaves in the Greco-Roman Empire, Greco-Roman world, enjoyed more favorable living conditions than many free laborers. 
Contrary to the supposition that everyone was trying to avoid slavery at all costs, it is clear that some people sold themselves into slavery to obtain particular employment open only to slaves and to enjoy a better standard of living than they had experienced as free persons. And so we have to have a balanced, nuanced view here of what's going on. When we see the word slave, it's not always Alex Haley's roots, if you can remember that from, I think, the 1970s, pre-Civil War American slavery. It's not that, often and in many ways. But still, still, very often, it was oppressive and difficult and miserable and sinful the things that were done to slaves. So why does Paul seem to ignore the issue of slavery itself? That's the question that people have here. Slaves, why doesn't Paul go on to say, fight for your freedom? Organize a protest. Storm the capital. Why doesn't he say that? Paul is writing here, again, in a different society, but he's also not writing as William Wilberforce in Parliament, but as a pastor to a congregation. One writer says, This letter is addressed to members of a church, not leaders in society. It was meant to help Christians in their present circumstances. The glory of the gospel is that it has something to give in the worst situation we experience. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to see people free in Christ now, whether or not slavery would be abolished in the future. When that happened, however, the weapons forged by the gospel won the battle. Did Paul cherish all slavery and want it to be perpetual? He wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.21 to slaves, If you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul wasn't completely pro-slave as an institution. If you can gain your freedom, do so. He spoke of slave traders as ungodly and sinful in 1 Timothy 1.9. In the letter to Philemon, he sends back a runaway slave, but says to his master Philemon, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he might, you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So this situation of, of slavery, it's not an easy situation just to casually or quickly speak about. It's hard for us to comment about it from our place of freedom that we just take for granted and just say, well, it wasn't so bad to be a slave. But why didn't Paul fight for the abolition of slavery? Why didn't he become a gospel Spartacus and start a slave revolt or encourage one? We need to remember as well in that time it was death for a slave to revolt or run away. Encouraging slaves to revolt or escape would have resulted in death for them and disrepute for the gospel. There was a more excellent way. 
The freedom that Jesus came to bring was first and foremost a spiritual freedom. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been the slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's where we need to begin. Many people today think they are free and they're really slaves. Very truly, I tell you, said Jesus in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. The gospel means that some people who may have been slaves outwardly were truly free. Joseph was in prison, but he was more free than Potiphar's wife who put him there. God changes people more than he sometimes changes their circumstance. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And that doesn't mean just in the outward institution of slavery, but inwardly, don't be a slave of men. Don't be driven along by other people or by your circumstances. You are free in Christ. What was true for slaves then, Christian slaves then, is true for us today. God can give you true freedom from the guilt of sin and slavery to sinful thoughts and words and actions. You know that freedom. Young people, are are you just listening to the world that says, oh, your goal is just to live the way you want to live, any way that you want to live so that you can be free. The Bible says that's slavery that leads to death. But trusting in Christ sets you free from the punishment of sin. And God gives you the power to be free from the slavery to sinful thoughts and deeds. And that's wonderful and glorious. But listen, as we think of Ephesians 6, verse 5, he may not take you out of your present circumstances. You can be free from your sin and not free from your job or your unbelieving family or your mental or physical difficulties. But the gospel is greater than being circumstance-driven. It raises people amazingly above their circumstances so that the devil just can't say, does Job fear God for nothing? And then the world sees something it doesn't recognize. Then the world sees something beyond itself, the power of grace and love Something from heaven itself. Listen, Titus 2. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, 
to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That is the gospel at work. That is the gospel at work. This is the amazing thing. Even for slaves. Paul speaks to slaves and later masters, describing how the gospel can change them for God's glory. And this is, I think, the helpful point for us this morning. Do you remember when Paul said grace was shown, mercy was shown to me, the worst of sinners? Remember? First Timothy. So that, even if you think you're the worst of sinners, there's mercy for you. God took the worst of sinners and showed mercy so that everyone could have hope. Well, what is Paul doing here? He's speaking to slaves in the first century. If he can say this to slaves in the first century, whatever your job is, there's hope. It's not as bad as this. It's not as bad as this often was. That's that's what you should think. If God could give grace to slaves in the first century to live this way, he can give grace to me to go to work Monday morning. He can give me grace to deal with that employer, to live for God's glory so that people could see the gospel at work. How much more this speaks to us when our situation is not as desperate and grim as being a slave. And so we have this word that speaks to us about how we work in the world, how we conduct ourselves at our work, whatever that is, workplace, home, school, and why we work the way that God is calling us to do. Two main points this morning. Much more brief. Here are the two main points that Paul says, that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Two things to keep in mind. Whom we serve and how we serve. Whom we serve and how we serve. Whom we serve. We'll deal with that this morning. We'll go to how we serve this afternoon. Whom we serve. When you go to work, when you wake up on Monday morning, for whom do you work? Well, of course, there are all kinds of answers. The name of your employer or your company comes to mind. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's private sector. But also, again, less clear but still applicable answers. For whom do you work when you clean the house, when you do the dishes, when you take out the garbage? For whom do you work at school when you study, do homework, or do a project? What Paul is pointing out here, is it, is it just for your earthly master? Is it just for your earthly master? Is that all that you have in mind when you work? Is it just for yourself? That's an interesting thought. 
Tim Keller pointed this out. I think it's very interesting. A job is a vocation only if someone calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is if it is remained as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. Wow. How often in the world you're like, well, why do you work? Well, because it's so fulfilling. I find it so fulfilling. That may be true, but is that all there is? That's idolizing yourself. For whom do you work? Here is the transforming reality for every true believer in all the work they do. Verse 5. As unto Christ. As unto Christ. Write those words on your forehead. Bind them to your hands. Write them over your computer. Put them up on the fridge as unto Christ. Write them on the beakers in the laboratory as, if you're allowed, as unto Christ. Did you notice that in this section, verses 5 through 9, in every verse, in every verse, the Lord is mentioned. Go through it. In every one, refers back to the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Who is your master? In every area of life, including the workplace, if you're a Christian, you serve Jesus. That's the point. It was the same for all submission in 521, out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, as unto the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, in the Lord. Don't keep your eyes downward at the grindstone. Lift them up to heaven where Christ is. When Paul says in verse 5, obey earthly masters, literally masters according to the flesh, that is language that anticipates the contrast in verse 9. The master, the one who is in heaven. There are two masters. The earthly master... The master according to the flesh, and we all have them. And the master, the one who is in heaven. Whom do you serve? Two avenues of application for that question. The Lord is our master, helps us in terms of respect in our work and reward for our work. Respect and reward. One motivation for work is that you respect your employer. When you do it, it will reflect in your work. When you respect your employer, it will reflect in your work. You want to work hard to please them. You're more inclined to put up with things because you know that you're contributing to that person's good name or welfare or furthering the cause. It's a wonderful motivation to have in work. Isn't that how Jesus lived and served? What was the focus of our Lord as he served even to the point of the cross? as he was mocked and ridiculed, as he was opposed and conspired against, as he was denied and betrayed, his eyes were always on heaven. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I have brought glory on earth to you by finishing the work you gave me to do. 
the ultimate respect for the one whose work you are doing. But that issue of respect is often a challenge for us in our work in the world. We have an increasingly impersonal culture and workplace. That doesn't help. It doesn't help. It may be one thing to actually work for Miles Horton at his Ottawa Street Donut Shop in Hamilton in 1964. But now when you work for Tim, that was his nickname, when you work for Tim Hortons, as of August 26, 2014, Burger King purchased Tim Hortons for $11.4 billion. But then Tim Hortons became a subsidiary of the Canadian holding company called Restaurant Brands International. That company is now majority owned by a Brazilian investment firm called 3G Capital. Who are you working for? It's all, it's so impersonal. But what does a Christian think? I'm serving the Lord as unto Christ. You're an employee of the government. It's not always the greatest motivation. As unto Christ. There's a respect you can have. There's a thought that will help you put up with things. As unto Christ. What if your employer is not just anonymous, but annoying? That's the second point that Paul makes. Reward. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. The word reward is the same word for receive in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things well done in the body, whether good or bad. You may receive a lot of grief from your employer, from your earthly master in lots of ways, and grief may be a euphemism. Slaves, of course, were often in a much harder situation, certainly less vocational mobility than we have often. We need to remember what Paul said, if you can gain your freedom, do so. There's nothing wrong with looking for other work or a better work environment, especially if we are being asked to do something to God's word so that it violates our conscience. If you can gain your freedom, do so. We are not called to be employment martyrs just for the sake of it. Some of you, I know, today, tomorrow, face real challenges at work with what's being required. Do what you can to make your case, but do it with respect and humility. And if for the time being the situation doesn't change, there is an other work. Carry on the way that God wants you to work, as we'll see this afternoon. Keep doing good. God is not unjust. 
Leave the ultimate dealings with your employer to the Lord, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written in his mind to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's your your boss, give a good day's work. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and do not become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every Christian is free in Christ. Every Christian is a slave of Christ and a servant of God and of righteousness, whatever your work may be. But whatever it is this morning, whatever your work is, as unto Christ. In terms of the respect for the one for whom you work and the reward that you'll receive. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you die and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. As unto Christ. So that as much as we want good job reviews and evaluations here on earth, how much more by God's grace to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness.